Hey everyone, this is Charlie Shrem, and you're listening to Untold Stories. This is a show where we dive deep into the lives and personal histories of some of crypto's most influential leaders and find out how the crypto movement truly came to be. Let's dive in. Today I had on the show neurologist Dr. Daniel Stein. Amazing. We talked about the Florida Medical Cannabis Program. We talked about cannabis in general. We talked about some really, really cool topics. A little bit different, not really crypto. Tell me if you like it. Untold Stories wouldn't be here without the amazing production company, Blockworks Group. A few months ago, I approached Blockworks Group and I said, hey guys, I want to do a show, Untold Stories. Can we make it happen? And these guys are the only event and podcast production company that I trust. Really, the show is powered by them and it wouldn't be here today without the amazing work of the Blockworks Group team. So for access to all the premier digital asset conferences and to check out their other podcasts in their network that they produce, check them out at blockworksgroup.io. That's blockworksgroup.io. I promise you will not be disappointed. Today I have Dr. Daniel Stein. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for coming on the show today. You are welcome. We were talking like earlier and um, I'm excited for this new concept. And the times that I've talked to you, I remember the first time I met you, I said, well, this would be a great show um, when we sat and, and you talked to my wife and I about the whole Florida medical cannabis program. Um, so thanks for being like the guinea pig on this. Sure. Um, I want to like start off and tell you uh, my first reaction to, to the program. So like, like most people who grew up North or grew up anywhere, um, how it ended up playing out and how things worked out um, and how it was developed and, you know, things like vertical and vertical integration, which I, I want to ask you your opinion on. Um, at first I looked at the medical cannabis program as a, as a hurdle or as like a transition to recreational. But now being in the program for almost a year, I have to say uh, my first reaction is that it's not that it's a hurdle. In fact, it's not very difficult to become part of the program if it's something that you actually really want to do. But it almost creates like a soft landing for people who want to get into the uh, into the, not just the industry, but become a patient uh, and start using. Um, do you think that uh, a lot of people agree with me and that maybe the medical cannabis it could be the end all be all, or it's like more of a transition to recreational. Can I say the answer is both? Uh, because, it could be, yeah. <laughs> you know, I think there's a subgroup of the population that uses cannabis to help with mood, relaxation, and those individuals are generally referred to as recreational users. But uh, in fact, that is a medical indication. Uh, you know, Dennis Perone, one of the great activists uh, from California, said that all cannabis use is medical uh, because we're self-medicating, even when it's for recreation. It's true. So there's that. Um, and there's also a large segment of the population that's not familiar with cannabis use, now just being introduced to it as a medical alternative, let's say someone with cancer and so forth. So I think that for a large number of users now, they want to become legit. They want to get legal. They want to get their cannabis without taking uh, risks on the, uh, you know, on the black market. And so, yes, they are entering the 
legal cannabis market as patients uh, with conditions such as anxiety uh, or insomnia or chronic pain, and that's great. Um, but I also think that there's a large segment of the population that are not familiar with cannabis, and they're being introduced to it now as patients for the first time. When they're being introduced for the first time, um, I almost cringe when I see, like right now downstairs from my office is like a CBD store. I almost cringe when I see that because I almost look at that uh, CBD is, and the CBD stores on their own is almost like snake oil. I know that's like a little bit too extreme. Um, but why did, why did CBD and CBD flower get treated so differently and become so unregulated, uh, compared to like medical cannabis? Well, I think the main difference has to do with the risk of intoxication. Um, you know, CBD will not cause intoxication. Um, it sure. does, ha- it does have certain psychological effects. It can reduce anxiety, um, and, and produce a calming effect, or actually in certain doses, it can elevate your energy level and give you a feeling of, uh, of uh, being energetic or high without the psychoactive. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And so, you know, a lot of people say that CBD is not psychoactive and that's not accurate. Uh, CBD is psychoactive, but it's not intoxicating. So that's why, you know, patients or wannabe patients will say, okay, CBD is great. It helps me relax. I mean, that's a psychological effect. It's just not intoxicating. And the, the powers that be when it came down to regulating cannabis felt that the CBD part of the plant uh, should be um, less regulated, uh, more available because it was quote unquote safer. I, that's the difference there. You know, I, 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 I understand that and you've made good points. Um, so the basic question is, and a lot of people have this question is that, does it work? I mean, when you go into a store like the one downstairs, the gentleman's very nice guy. And I think he believes, you know, his products, how, how could someone get the most out of CBD without being a medical cannabis patient or recreational? And I just want to start there because a lot of people don't want to take, you know, they want to take that first step. I know a lot of people who smoke CBD flour just because it makes them comfortable with, you know, the next step? I think the first thing you have to establish is that the products that vendors like your neighbor are selling are good quality products because there's a lot Mm -hmm. of CBD products out there uh, that are not uh, what they uh, portend to be. Uh, Not What you get in the bottle is not what's described on the label, for example, and it's, it's produced in a way that may have certain toxins or other contaminants. So number one, if, if you're going to buy a CBD product, you have to get it from a reliable vendor, make sure it's clean. Uh, so that's number one. Um, when it comes to using CBD that's from a reliable vendor, you can get benefits. You know, CBD is a potent anti-inflammatory, analgesic. Um, like I said, it can affect your mood. Interesting. Yeah, so that's fine. I have no problem with CBD from a reliable source. But you know what we're talking about, Charlie, is plant medicine. Let's just say yeah. that. And and the whole plant is really what is available from nature to help us. And the whole plant includes CBD plus all these other cannabinoids. Including- Can we talk about the plant for a second? I still don't. Most people, I mean, you have all these terms. You have 
terpenes, which I'm learning are, are actually like, I didn't know that cannabis actually can taste. It's so cool. Um, can we talk about the, the, the flower and the plant itself just from like the first time, you know, someone puts a seed in the ground or at a lab or whatever, and then it starts to sprout, uh, you know, stems or whatever. What Then what happens? Because apparently you have to, it has to be a female plant, not a male plant. I don't, I don't know all these things. Most people don't. Well, I'm no botanist, but yeah. I, you know, it's, it's important when you're uh, uh, practicing plant medicine to understand at least uh, some of what goes on there. So I appreciate that question because I've been learning myself, you know, as a, I'm an allopathic doctor. I'm not a homeopath. I was trained in a Western medical school and we learned nothing about plant medicine other than aspirin came from, uh, you know, trees and tree bark and digitalis came from foxglove but i had to learn all this from scratch myself and i i'm still learning so so forgive me if there's any botanists in the audience that uh have uh, a particular knowledge about uh the thing that you're asking but in general you have female plants and you have male plants and the female plants uh, become pollinated and produce seeds and then of course um, you know, the seeds then grow into other plants. So it's, uh, it's, okay, just so it's like, only females. Yeah. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Now you, you can, you can, you can eliminate pollination and seed production in female plants. And that's what sensimilia is. Uh, the word sensimilia means without seeds. And, mm. and when we were growing up, you know, finding that type of cannabis, that sensimilia was, was important because it was more potent. The plant, the plant, the female plant puts its energy into making seeds when it wants to reproduce. But if you create a sensimilia with no seeds, then that female plant expends its energy producing cannabinoids, THC, terpenes, CBD. So is it's that what's in, used nowadays? Yeah, pretty much all commercial cannabis is sensimilia. So then where do they get the seed? If they're not producing new seeds, then where are they getting their seeds? I mean, will, will, will it run out? No, because there are <laughs> seed banks out there. And uh, that's a whole part of the cannabis industry. Oh, I didn't know this. This is so cool. Yeah, seed banks. So wait, <laughs> so people who want to grow at their homes, which I want to ask you about, it's not legal here yet. People want to grow at their homes. If Technically, if they grow these, you know, two plants seedless, then they run there after the first harvest. Is it over or can you can it keep producing that those same plants? Well, you I'm sorry, Charlie, can you repeat that question? The way I the way I think I understand the plant and I don't want to spend too much time on the plant, but the way I understand it is that. When you harvest the flower, the plant is still alive, it just regrows, you don't you're not killing the plant, you're not pulling it out of the ground, so you don't need. Once you harvest without, once you harvest with these type of seeds, it's not like the plant is dead and you can't reuse it again. It is. It is dead because oh, when you, when you harvest, you, you pull it out of the ground, you hang it up and it has to cure or dry. Hmm. And uh, that's it for that plant. But before you harvest, what you can do is create clones, take cuttings from that plant, put it back in soil and grow what you hope will be a, a genetically identical product to the original plant. And that's super important because right now, uh, cannabis industry, uh, you know, 
uh, cultivators are working very hard to create certain varieties of cannabis that will have certain effects, either you know, for medicinal purposes or for so-called adult use or recreational purposes. Interesting, because that actually leads me into, into the topic of that vertical, vertical integration, which is a hot topic now um, when it comes to you know, the, the ability for growers to come in. Like you have a grower who develops an amazing strain in California, wants to come in and license out. It's very difficult here. I think only there's very few dispensaries here. I know that uh, Vitacan has the Tikkun Olam, which is great. I have a shirt over there from Tikkun Olam. They're my favorite company. Well, that's the perfect example, actually. So here you have a, a, an Israeli company based out of California that has developed only like two or three strains. One of them that I use for my, uh, for like the anxiety and uh, the Alaska strain. And what's interesting about the Alaska strain is it's scientifically engineered uh, for, for its medical purposes. The high is actually not even that great. It's more for just like the, you just feel happier, the uplifting effect. So here's an example of like a product that I use for, or people will use for medicinal purposes and have other products that they use for like recreational. You can have different types of products, but with vert vertical integration, it's not really possible to have these like licenses and growers. You, you can't even have like, you can't even have a dispensary. can't even subcontract out their like janitorial staff, apparently so difficult. Yeah. Vertical integration, just so we're clear, is the uh, is the limitation imposed by the Florida legislature that requires that the growers also are responsible for processing the plant and selling the plant. So you can't come into Florida like you can in Colorado and open up a storefront and call it a dispensary. You don't have that degree of competition and that results yeah. in higher prices. So the vertical integration in Florida uh, limits competition and, and keeps some of the prices artificially elevated. It also reduces the variety of cannabis yeah. available, like you said. So yeah, there's limits and I'm not a big fan of vertical integration, but I am a fan of regulation, believe it or not. Yeah. And this me too, which is odd because this is a crypto show, but in this situation I am too. Yeah, you want the products to be clean and you want them to be free of pesticides and heavy metals and mold. And so, you know, the regulation part is important. A lot of my patients will ask me that, you know, they'll be like, well, I, I read about this terrible lung disorder that you can get from vaping. How do I know that the vape cartridges I buy at the dispensary here in Sarasota won't cause that problem? And I can tell them confidently that they won't because there's no vitamin E, you know, di diluting the oil in the vape cartridge. And that's only a product of the regulation. And that was a, a big issue with, with vaping. Um, and people are still worried about vaping because of all the cutting agents. But like you said, it's regulated here. So regulation in this situation, you know, is a good thing with supply. You know that at least it's coming, you know, the supply chain is completely set. I think it could open up a little bit more, though. I hope it can. Yeah, I think it'll be good for for other, you know, other entrants into the market to provide other varieties of cannabis. Like you said, you know, the, the particular variety that you found useful is fantastic. But if there's more varieties and those can be regulated, then I think it's better for the consumer overall. You uh, you alluded to something interesting earlier with Western medicine. Uh, I find it I found it kind of like 
interesting uh, and cool. The way this the program was set up, not just here, but other places, how basically the the doctors have become almost like the gatekeepers for people getting, you know, the toll booths of getting into the industry. And these, like you said, here you almost have like, so you're trained in Western medicine, you're a neurologist, and then you have this like cannabis thing that we've known for a long time that it has medical benefits, but the studies have been almost non-existent just because it's not, you know, it's federal schedule one. Um, and it's so interesting how, how everything, how everything worked out and how you now have shifted and have created a, a cannabis clinic. Uh, can you tell me like how that all worked out? And did you get any feedback from your, your, your peers or colleagues in the, you know, in, in, in your industry, in your space and neurology fields um, for doing this? Well, when I, when I was practicing general neurology without any cannabis clinic availability, my patients would ask me about cannabis medicine because they had explored it on their own. They were self-medicating and they wanted to know my opinion. So for years, um, especially my multiple sclerosis patients, for years, they were asking me my opinion on cannabis use to reduce muscle stiffness. Um, just because we didn't have research going on in the United States, you know, doesn't mean there wasn't studies going on in the rest of the world. Plus, we know that for thousands of years, cannabis has been used effectively uh, for medication. So I had been asked about it for many years. And when it became legal in Florida, Amendment 2 passed in uh, November 2016, I, I, I saw that as an opportunity. So I got my qualification, my certification, and started offering cannabis legally to those patients. And they were very happy to have that option because, you know, conventional medicine falls short for a lot of patients. And uh, when I made that offer available to not only MS patients, but patients with migraine or, you know, Tourette's, epilepsy, chronic pain, and other things, uh, it was very well received by the patients, uh, very well received. The, the community of doctors, though, the, the other Western-trained physicians here in Sarasota um, were not 100% on board initially, um, but I had established credibility here. I've been practicing in Sarasota since 93, so the docs here knew that I, I, was, not, um, I was not going to offer something that I didn't think was safe. Yeah. You know, I had some political capital. So I sent out letters to everybody. I was like, okay, I'm doing this thing. And I tried to visit the doc's offices. I was giving a presentation. How many doctors were there in the beginning when the pro? So I, I, you know, when we moved here, the program had already started. But I mean, how did the program kind of launch? How many doctors were there? Did, were you one of the first ones? I, I was one of the first ones. You know, it launched after the November election beginning in January 2017. And there were a handful of doctors in Sarasota County, uh, maybe 10 docs. May, and, and throughout the state, there may have been 100 or 200 statewide in the wow. big. Wow. Yeah. And so I, I incorporated in uh, April, actually. Uh, my daughter, Juliet, is a co-founder of our Neurology of Cannabis business. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, uh, and then we launched our clinic the following October. And I think that uh, we were about around 500 in the state, you know, maybe 600 max, the whole state. And so I did the numbers and there was, there's a huge need. There's a huge need for reliable docs to provide the service. And how did, how did some, like, was the program a little bit quirky in the beginning? It seems like now it's pretty, it's done pretty efficiently. Was it quirky? Were there 
kind of like hiccups and issues with how things were playing out? Yeah. There was one time I remember uh, I was online with the registry. The state manages what they call the Office of Medical Marijuana Use, OMN. It's literally a public facing like Excel spreadsheet, which is great. It's so simple. Right. And, and now it seems to be working pretty well, but I can tell you there were bugs, there were, there were hiccups. And one time I was actually on the website and it shut off. And then a few minutes later, it came back on with a different design. So, oh, that's so funny. With different questions and different requirements and, and more, actually, more requirements for the doctor in terms of, you know, qualifying patients and, and, and dotting all the I's. And so it became actually a little bit more difficult for many of the docs to do the registration process. And a lot of those docs that signed up to do it initially have dropped out, actually. So, really? Yeah. So even though the process is becoming more efficient in terms of patient use, the requirements are more stringent in terms of doctor use. So there's that. That's very interesting how that, oh, my lights turned off. It always happens during the show. <laughs> um, it's great, actually. We're, I'm here in Sarasota. I'm on Main Street, right up upstairs above Classico, and where the office is. And you're, and you're here too. Um, cannabis really uh, was put in front of the limelight during COVID nineteen. Um, I, I I love how we went from like cannabis being like you can get shot on the street by the cops for having you know a joint to being an essential business. It's kind of crazy. It is. It's crazy. It, and it's good. Um, you know, it's good that uh, that the government realizes that cannabis as medicine uh, is required uh, for many, many, many people. Um, unfortunately, uh, we still have a lot of difficulty with the cannabis industry in terms of operations uh, when it comes to government regulations. You are probably familiar with the banking limitations yes. that the cannabis industry has to deal with. And so that's a big mess. Um, but as that's far as still it's a huge mess, it's huge. Right. And actually, I thought, Charlie, we might talk about that a little bit and you could teach me something because I'm curious. They're all using cash. It's 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 actually. Uh, so I'll tell you what they're doing. The cannabis industry is insane. It's finally here. The new BitPay card that I've been talking about for the past few months. I've been using the BitPay card since 2016 and BitPay now has relaunched the whole program with such cool features. The reloading has no conversion fees to go from Bitcoin right onto the card and you can load the card whenever and wherever you want to. It has built-in contactless pay and EMV chip built in right into the card and so much more. The limits and rates are amazing. Uh, this is a bank account in your pocket. Just download the latest version of the BitPay app and you can order the card right in the app. I just did it. I went through the whole process, took five seconds. Check it out. Download the BitPay app today. So you talk about all this cash, right? And what percent of the cash in America is actual like physical dollars? Very little. Uh, I think it's like 3% um, globally. And so a large amount of it is the cannabis industry. That's just cash. It's a very cash business. And now like they have CanPay, which is unbelievable. Is really to payment processor just for the cannabis industry here in Florida. Um, but so what they're doing, the cannabis industry is that they set up these bank accounts that they don't touch. Right. And then what happens is they get cash pickup from like Garda or any of these, uh, you know, um, Brinks, you know, whatever they're called, the, the cash transit companies. Mm -hmm. And they, they can pick up the cash, take it to the facility 
And what ends up happening is the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta, I know they because that's the closest one, the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta actually ends up buying the cash from Garda. So then these dispensaries, like Trulieve or whatever, are getting wire transfers once a week from the Federal Reserve Bank. The, the Federal Reserve is sending them the wires. It's yeah, just that, kind of... That's allowed, right? That part It, it doesn't make any sense, but that's what's happening because there's middlemen. Everyone's making money along the way. There's people are doing compliance along the way. There's like a system for it. It's like China. They make a law, then they make a loophole, and they figure out a loophole, and then they create a law around the loophole. It's not a bad way to run a government, to be honest with you, because people are going to figure out the loopholes, so you regulate the loopholes. It's great. But I wanted to ask you something um, on the topic of neurology of cannabis that really people don't talk about. Now, I love cannabis, but I also realize that cannabis is not a miracle drug. It's not a drug. It's not a miracle thing in that there are no downsides and people have to realize that. And it's something I want to talk to you about because, and this is why I really think that that cannabis could potentially stay medical and, you know, for, for a while in that there are some negative things that, that a lot of people notice. And, you know, the, the industry is almost like created this, its own self-regulatory, self-regulated situations around this. Like, for example, one of the problems is, is you build a high tolerance very quickly. And uh, a lot of people end up doing these things like tea breaks, like tolerance breaks, which I didn't even know was a thing. So I took like a two week tolerance break. And what's really great is that you can completely start your tolerance all over again, but you're also like self-disciplining yourselves. You're teaching, you're teaching yourself to quit every, you know, few months. What other like, not downsides, but you know, that you go into like this, the, uh, the spiral of stress where it's like, if you're, if you're, using too much, you become depressed that you're using too much and you're relying on it. So it becomes like a negative. What are some things that people can look out for in advance? Uh, so help them balance their usage to maximize it and do it in the most like efficient way. There are risks uh, to cannabis use, and it's an important thing to address because in young people, for example, using too much cannabis, uh, let's say, before the age of 18, or even as a 12 or 13 year old, if you, if you use too much cannabis and what is too much, but let's just say that you're not feeling confident socially unless you're high, or you have trouble learning how to uh, cope or sleep or eat without being high, you know, then you develop what's called a cannabis use disorder, CUD. And cannabis use disorder is a condition where Individuals rely on cannabis to participate in day-to-day activities and occupy themselves with the task of acquiring cannabis. They're preoccupied with that. And, mm-hmm. and they suffer socially if they don't have it. So even though they may know that they're not behaving normally with cannabis, they're avoiding work, they're not going out to certain social events, because they'd rather be home. So that's a cannabis use disorder, CUD, and it's a, it's in the it's in the Bible of psychiatric disorders, the DSM uh, diagnostic. It's a, it's a real thing. I think it's a real thing. Everyone goes through it though at some point. It's how you find your 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 jive, your balance, right? Exactly. And if you're a young person, you don't necessarily have the frontal lobe function to help modulate those um. activities. Then you're more at risk for a cannabis use disorder. You can't, you can't self-regulate. Um, I think self-regulation is something that you, that you develop in your mid twenties. 
I think it's not even when you're 21. I, I look at myself when I was 20, 21, I had no self-regulation, but now I feel like I do not just with this, but with anything. Yeah. So- maybe because you have a future to look, you care about now. Maybe that's why. I don't know. You have a lot more to lose. You have more to lose when you're, when you're young, you're impervious, you know, you, you can't hurt yourself. Uh, and, uh, and let's face it, you know, cannabis makes you feel good. And it, it's, uh, it's, it's a loop. It's a reward loop. And so, yeah, you know, there is addiction. Patients do become, people in general can become addicted to cannabis. It can affect your social interactions. And, you know, we have to be on the lookout for that. Um, I agree. I really, really agree. And it's something that when I was like 19, a lot of people too, when I was like 18 or 19, went through that spiral. A lot of people go through it too. So when we took the step to to re-engage with cannabis again, um, we had to make like a conscious decision to be on top of it and to make sure that we're still, you know, you have to like give yourself uh, um, like metrics of what your life, you know, of your life. And if those metrics start to change, it's not just like business though, because you can be more successful in business, but also be less so, you know, socially communication. So there's all these different things. Do you think, you think cannabis would change? You think cannabis will change in the future, like in terms of its form and function? Do you think that you think we'll be looking at a different product five years from now? I, I, I look at it as a renaissance. I, I believe that cannabis has for millennia been available to humans for a variety of reasons. And we're rediscovering that right now. You know, during the last hundred years, there's been prohibition. And that's been awful. Uh, but prior to that time, even Eli Lilly was producing cannabis cigarettes for asthma patients and, oh, wow. and tinctures. So we're rediscovering those things. And, and I think that in, in the next you know, 10 or 20 years, um, as all of the states in, in the United States allow cannabis use uh, for adult use, um, it'll be a rediscovery. And I, I think that the traditional growers, the cultivators, the, the heritage growers, some people call, yeah. will continue to produce a variety of cannabis plants that people will use. And so I don't think that's new. I think that's new again, you know, because it used to be that way. Yeah. It's just, you know, the, it's still the same under the sun or the sun remains the same or whatever the, uh, the term is. Um, a lot of people in crypto are very similar and say like, you know, now everyone's talking about Bitcoin, 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 but in the future, crypto will just be part of everyday life. Uh, cannabis, can it potentially, can, can smoking flour potentially be, be become like a niche thing and uh, THC and CBD end up becoming part of like mainstream, um, like mainstream medication? Yeah, I, I, I think it will. I think, Cannabis use will become mainstream in much the same way that alcohol is. Um, there'll be regulations um, on age, uh, yeah. patients, amounts, uh, intoxication measurements to, you know, to provide uh, a certain surveillance to protect people from hurting other people. I mean, it's going to be regulated, but it will be available. And one of the varieties of uh, cannabis that's, let's say, more artisanal will cost more. And that's... yeah like the micro brew, whereas there'll be other cannabis that's more the gel caps or whatever yeah, will just be sold at Publix or whatever. Exactly. And so I, that's, that's the future I envision. Hey, so, um, 
you know, I had a great question. I forgot. <laughs> no, maybe that's a, that's what I, I, I write them down, but I forgot to write it down because I was so engrossed on the question. Um, you know what? The question was around schedule one. So why has the federal government been so reluctant to even create a like probationary schedule to put cannabis on? Like, I guess what I'm, what I'm asking is, yes, they've been very hands off. There have been letters under Obama's attorney, you know, administration. There have been letters where the attorney general has written, you know, like, I'm not going to touch this, but still reluctant, you know, the most, uh, uh, liberal president we've had in a while, Obama, like still didn't, it didn't take it off schedule and even talk about it. But then letting all these states develop is all these, these programs, Department of Health, you know, is running this program here. Why have they been so reluctant to eat, to, to just change the concept of like having drug schedules? Why is that even a thing? Money, Charlie, it's money. It's the pharmaceutical lobbyists. It's, it's the, it's the established, uh, political machine that prevents, you know, social progress because of greed. And, you know, it started in, you know, it started in 1937 with the the cannabis uh, prohibition uh, and the tax act before that, uh, which protected industries that were afraid of hemp. You know, they were, they didn't want hemp to compete with their golden goose making paper. And um, I think Hearst was even involved in suppressing cannabis use because uh, the Hearst Foundation didn't want hemp available to make paper. And the other thing is the social injustice part, because throughout our history, unfortunately, our, our government has used certain powers to suppress certain social groups throughout history. And, 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 Cannabis has also been used, especially under the Nixon administration, when the Controlled Substance Act was written and Schedule One was developed, to use cannabis, not only uh, cannabis uh, prohibition as a way to protect industry, but also to, uh, to, uh, to villainize or, or um, attack you know, people of color uh, and, uh, and, and from other countries. So... That's it, man. It's the social machine that yeah. that it's a social political uh, industry out there that's that adds to the prohibition. It's awful. It don't prevents get me, don't get me started able, on this. Yeah, no, it prevents <laughs> the police from being able to pull over anyone they want. You know, the, regardless of like skin color and things like that. That's one of my biggest problems too. Um, you know, when I was in when I was in federal prison. Um, most of my friends were in because of uh, cannabis reasons. I mean, I could literally name you like every reason. All my friends were. I literally tell right now one of my good friends. He taught yoga three days a week. Um, he was a he sold he was a he owned a construction company, very successful in New Jersey, and he also he got caught with like a pound of weed. And you know, he's like, I don't know if I. He didn't tell me if he was like selling it or using it or whatever. But I'm like, a pound? That's it? You got like 15 years or whatever it is. Yeah, it's tragic. Yeah, you have no idea. Well, you do have an idea, but yeah, and just the people I was in with, it's just heartbreaking to see their kids not even understand that they're that they're growing up without a father because of a plant. Yeah, and and it and and the social inequity, um, you know, depending on the color of your skin and you know where you, where you live was part of that. So you know, we're still trying to fight for equality in this new age of cannabis 
commerce because a lot of the disadvantaged communities that um, want to now become involved in cannabis commerce are having trouble breaking into the industry. They're having trouble getting loans because of the banking limitations and, uh, you know, cannabis um, ind- industry leaders in general are still white men. So yeah, that's true. It, it doesn't seem fair. And, uh, the, and the people that are uh, promoting cannabis, uh, cannabis laws nowadays, you know, that are socially conscious um, are sometimes opposed by people that are promoting cannabis industry uh, changes that are more commercial. So we have now uh, two groups of at least two of, of individuals that are trying to promote cannabis use. One is the more commercial, you know, white yeah. led. And then the other is the more social, traditional, um, open, open door policy. So that's kind of an interesting little nuance. And that's the reason they don't allow even medical patients to grow our own. I mean, it's, it's just makes no sense why we couldn't be able to do it. That's a perfect example. Um, this cannabis is so expensive. It's so, I, I, it's, I don't know how people afford it, to be honest. It's so expensive, like to, to, to have a, a, a medical plan, a monthly medical plan literally costs you hundreds, if not thousands of dollars now. You hit it right there, Charlie. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. You, if you can't grow your own and you can't control your own medicine, really, what's the point? And this last year, uh, there were two bills in Florida. One was backed by MedMen, which is now yeah. going under. Uh, it's going under. There, MedMen and Sutera, they think we're stupid here. They, we know that the medical cannabis industry is not very big here. We're, we're tight-knit. That's right. They wanted to maintain control over... The, can- the flow of cannabis in Florida and not allow patients to grow their own. And then there was this other uh, amendment uh, that was being voted on that would allow more freedoms to, to grow at home. So yeah, there's, there's all that. What was crazy is that I saw uh, there was, there was a very, you know, there was a, a, a recreational cannabis initiative for 2020. It was uh, well-funded and well-put-together, but it died very quickly. Actually, they pushed it off 2020, 2022. The reason being is because the backers were the ones, like you said, and it was the ones that that pushed on back on like high, high regulations. So the recreational law would have like not allowed people to grow on their own, and it would have only allowed medical dispensaries to start selling recreational. So basically like it was a... And so... The industry, which is the 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 patient community, which is three hundred thousand people or whatever, there there are very few forums that we congregate on to to talk amongst you know each other, um, and we know that the, the dispensaries read those forums too, um, and and we were very angry about the bill. We were extremely angry about about you know how these things were going to go out. Um, I have been I have been very um, happy with. You see, like Mr. Morgan, you know, he's been very um, adamant towards like um, legalization here. And a lot of like libertarian people, too, are pushing towards it. Um, do you see that people are are pushing towards like legalization here because they want to use the product? Or is it more for like freedom oriented related people? Well, I I think it's I think in, in Sarasota, considering our our demographic, um, you know, our population is still a little older, and I, I think that they they want 
the availability as medicine. So the cost yeah. goes down and they have more freedom. It's, it's not so much the, the libertarian view, I, I don't think, uh, but, but certainly there's both. Yeah. What are the demographics? A lot of people think it's just 18, 19 year olds. That are interested in cannabis? I wish I wish they would release the demographics of the total MMJ database in Florida. I would love to see what the average like cannabis patient age, you know, like stuff like that. So there's a there's a website out there called Headset that provides um, those types of of analytics for cannabis uh, industry participants, showing what certain age groups are buying in certain states. Oh, I see. This is cool. Yeah. So all of that is out there. And, uh, you know, in, in, it differs region to region, of course, depending on what the demographic is. Um, but I can tell you that there's a, there's a spike of, of increased use in individuals that are in their fifties and sixties and seventies. It's not, Oh, I got to pay for this. Yeah. It's not what you, (laughs) it's not free. Yeah, I know. It's, I know. Well, they have a great report for five hundred dollars. You can get a report on on all the sale. I kind of want it. I kind of want the report. I don't want to pay five. I pay fifty dollars for it, but I just want to see. So the I'm just one, curious. The one report that I was willing to pay for had to do with the drop off in medical use when recreational becomes legal, because I wanted to know how many patients I was going to lose when Florida voted positively for the rec. And it, it turns out that most of the businesses in Colorado, Oregon, and California that were medical lost about 30% of their revenue when those states went recreational. And that was an important data point for me. But getting back to the uh, age use uh, uh, demographic, um, there it's older than you would think. It's, 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 Patients, there's citizens that are 30 and 40 years old are using, and then there's this, there's this spike in, in the 50 and 60 year old age range. That's so cool. And I'm on this headset website. I lost my light again. I'm on this headset website and, um, the number one selling product is a topical in California. Topicals are great. It's not even a, let me tell you something about topicals. I thought topicals were going to be the biggest gimmick about, about this whole thing. No. And my counter is just topicaled up. I, I think we, that's what I spend my most money on. Um, the sun, the aloe vera suntan lotion is great. The, uh, the topical cream for like rashes and fungus and things like that is great, but you know, it works so good. The, the, the product that, um, that goes into your bloodstream. That's, that's for like neck and back pain and the transdermal patches, the three day patches. Oh my God. Right. Unbelievable. Works better than, 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 than even some uh, opiates. So this is huge. You know, you know, we're learning that different formulations of cannabis are, are better for certain conditions. And the topical works great for a lot of patients. You know, there's there's cannabinoid receptors in the skin. And so even, oh, I didn't know that even for local application, if you have a like a, a, a rheumatoid hand with, with swelling of the knuckles, you can put that topical right on there and get really good local anti-inflammatory relief without any intoxication. That's the beauty of it. That's why I like them too. Cause I could be at work and I have the, you know, the cream in my hand or whatever. It's really great. Um, are there any, are there any like real long-term effects that we see on our, our cannabinoid receptors? Like we talk about tolerance break and you reset that, but are there like 
long-term effects on uh, the receptors themselves or our bodies or whatever. We just don't know yet. We haven't seen any long-term adverse effects on receptors for cannabis users that um, let's say, you know, let's, let's say that for this, we need to do a lot more research. So there's this thing called PET scanning, PET. PET scans can be used to measure receptor density in different parts of the body. So you can get an injection of one of these uh, radioactive ligands, we call them, and they'll bind to the cannabinoid receptors. And you can actually see, for example, in patients with post-traumatic stress disorder, that their receptor density in a certain part of the brain is lower than it should be. So that's pretty oh, amazing. Wow. That's amazing, right? So, yeah. you know, then what you do is, is you give them cannabis and that helps supplement their endocannabinoid system and provides more of a stimulus to help pick up the slack for where those cannabinoid receptors are low. And so that biology, that is so amazing, isn't it? I mean, that we're learning that kind of thing. That but, is so cool. But we, as to answer your question, we don't know for sure if there's any long-term detrimental effects on receptor distribution, but we don't think there is because those receptors, they recycle. They, they sit on the surface of the cell. If you use too much stimulation, then those receptors downregulate. That's what we call the the, so, so what's happening with the tolerance? Is that what's happening? That's what's happening. Those receptors downregulate and, and then you need more of the chemical stimulus, more of the transmitter, cannabinoid, whatever, to stimulate that cell. Um, so that, oh, and then, so how long does that take? Like, how does your body know? It's interesting because Bitcoin works in a very similar way and I'll, I'll tell you how, but how, how does that actually work? And like, what's a timeline time frame realistically? It's days and weeks. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, you can you can build up tolerance uh, within really days. So so that using cannabis on a regular basis initially actually causes a sensitization of the cannabinoid receptors. So initially, using for several days in a row actually gives you more of an effect. And that's why some people say, "Oh, I smoked pot when I was young and I didn't feel anything." That's because they didn't do enough on a regular basis. So some people have zero effect initially. That's that first time it doesn't work. Is that yeah. true or is that a myth? No, 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 no. It's a semi-myth. You know, it, 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 it's some people. It's not everybody. You know, if, you're, if your endocannabinoid system is working beautifully, you can throw in some extra cannabinoids through smoking marijuana and it has no effect on you. Is there a way that you can, that a user can, can like balance his tolerance or her tolerance without having to take. So someone who's like using a topical cream on a daily basis, they're going to deal with the same tolerance issue. Someone who's smoking every day or needs to smoke more. Is there something that can, can a person use different products, different strains, different, is there something that you can cycle on a daily to weekly basis to give, continue to give yourself that tolerance? It, it all comes down to the dose. Um, okay. If you, if you reach a certain level of benefit using a certain dose and just maintain that level, you can avoid tolerance building up. If you maintain the dose, you maintain the effect, you reach a plateau. How do you do that, though? How do you maintain the effect by maintaining the dose? Well, Are you chasing the high kind of like? In, yeah. Yeah, you're chasing the high. So for, for the majority of patients, you know, we have to educate them to 
titrate up the amount of cannabis that they're using till they achieve a certain response and then just stay right there. And the majority of people do not need to increase the dose to maintain that effect. But what they do is they increase the amount anyway. Yeah. So the tolerance, yeah, tolerance is, is an issue for a lot of patients, but for most people, you, you can build up a certain response from a certain dose and maintain that actually. That's so interesting how that can work out. Um, because we're learning, I'm learning so many new things and I think people are learning um, as well now how that all works. There's, there's this other thing, Charlie, that's important, I think, for not just your listeners, but for everybody to understand. There's what we call a biphasic response for cannabis, where you can start with a small amount and build up a certain effect. And then if you use too much, it actually gives you the opposite effect. Yeah, we're talking, we're alluding to that earlier. It's that, that downward spiral, you get the opposite effect. Uh, I see people go through that sometimes and they quit for months because of it. And then they recycle their receptors. They have that tolerance break, you said, and, yep. and then they're good to go. And then they have to start out with a lower dose again. And that's, that's fine. Dr. Stein, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and coming on the show today. I, it makes me want to go. I'm going to go medicate myself after this. I got to finish work though first. <laughs> You are so welcome. Thank you. I love talking about this. You know, you know, our mission is to educate and provide access. And, uh, and I, I'm sure that this is helping in that respect. I thank you so much. I completely agree. Educate and entertain. That's like my motto in life. Try to do the same like E and E. I don't know where I heard that, but I can't take credit. But anyways, thank you again. You're welcome, Charlie. Hey, everyone. Thanks for listening. New episodes of Untold Stories are released every Tuesday and Thursday at 7 a.m. EST on untoldstories.com, Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. Untold Stories is produced by Jason Yanowitz, Michael E. Polito, Reed Hannaford, and Riley Silbert of BlockWorks Group. Our account executives are Gina DeFelice and Julie Muroff. Our content is written by Kathy Zolo, Ronnie Tishner, and Scott Offer. Special thanks to Wayne Dallaire from Jump Dog Audio Productions. And of course, I'm your host, Charlie Shrem. You can follow me on Twitter, at Charlie Shrem, to continue the conversation. Send me some messages, feedback, or anything you want to say. And remember, please give some love to my sponsors, and I'll see you next week. Remember, strength in numbers and information is power.